0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's not Christmas for me until I've watched the preacher's wife. And it's not Advent for me until I've bounced to prepare the way O Zion. What a hymn. Like the three other Gospels, the Gospel According to Mark has a personality all of its own, a special seasoning that would set it apart at any reputable taste testing. It is concise. It's the introduction of the fourth-grade research paper read aloud in class, Hello, I'm the Gospel According to Mark, and this is what I'm going to talk about the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Direct, pointed, simple. The narrator launches their audience not into a literary universe filled with flowery language and platitudes, but one defined by earthiness, dustiness, and enough water to be baptized in. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The senses come alive at the first strike of this passage. The dryness of wilderness heat, the sensation of water against the skin, a sign of crossing a threshold of radical reorientation the sound of crunching locusts between teeth, the taste of wild honey, the senses come alive. While we modern, rational folk have convinced ourselves that we can simply think ourselves into a better future, our ancestors understood that it takes a full-bodied experience. It takes crisp locusts. Sweet honey, coarse camel's hair, wading through the waters of baptism, and a trek in the desert, and there, in that place on the periphery of empire, at the edge of existence, there we come alive. Not as crash shout, but as rumor, and whisper as wilderness sage with sweet locust diet as teenage girl believed by no one except another woman as waiting room cough shattering midnight stillness advent forces those of us who find resolution in google's quickly accessed answers to search deeply and taxingly to unearth the questions of meaning belonging and existence Advent is the theological opposite of a search bar. When cable news chirons act as visual sirens and frantic schedules distract us from attentiveness to the present moment, Advent invites us to attend to rumor and whisper, those counterintuitive points of entry into the saga of salvation. A woman beyond childbearing age becoming a parent. A teenage girl believed by no one. A wilderness-wandering sage sustained only by locusts and honey. And will we say that John the Baptist is quite the fashionista? The camel's hair and leather belt. I don't know how that would go at Fashion Week in New York City, but... (laughs) I'm sure he would do fine. These people, that teenage mother, this woman beyond childbearing age, are the unlikely characters of God's unfolding drama of redemption. The challenge of Advent is how we disabuse ourselves of preconceived notions about how God comes to us. This might be a combination of personality, upbringing, and personal taste, but I was always skeptical of my seminary classmates who had dramatic call stories. The fierceness of their testimonies never resonated with me. Neither the obviousness of God's presence nor the ease and confidence with which they spoke reflected my own recollection of spirituality and divinity. My friend Mark has said that faith resembles something more like a collage than a systematic Christian doctrine. That some of us are more like theological foxes who remain unconvinced that reality is mirrored neatly in the recitation of neat maxims. Advent is the liturgical season for the people who don't know if all of this will turn out the way we'd like to think it should and will. It's for the people with doubts, for the people who are waiting, the people who spend more time in a Good Friday world than dwelling on thrilling Easter sunrises. Not as crash shout, but as rumor and whisper It almost takes a desert pilgrimage to appreciate the fragility of this whole thing, doesn't it? The desert itself is almost an efficacious enough preacher of John the Baptist's message. He doesn't have to say much. To make the journey outside the trappings of power and prestige is itself an act of repentance, of radical reorientation. It is to say... My sustenance depends not on my connection to glamour and power, but on my dependence on God and love alone. Like the prophets before him, John was inviting his nation and people to remember what it means to love and, more importantly, what it means to be loved by God. A subtle hearkening back to the honeymoon days of the exodus, if you'll call it that. When the only things keeping the people of God going were quail, manna, and pillars of cloud and fire, outward and visible signs of God's steady, if vulnerable, love. While I often imagine the voice of the one crying in the wilderness as registering at the most oppressive of decibels, it might be more fun to imagine John preaching at something just above a mumble with his audience leaning in listening with great precision, traveling between John's spot in the desert and their home villages, gradually building their numbers because of the weighty but gentle draw of this message of radical love. Because this is how God comes. Not as crash shout, but as whisper and rumor, as waiting room cough-shattering midnight stillness, piercing even our deepest held convictions about God's grandeur and glory. Reminding us that manger and stable, not throne and palace, are the staging grounds of God's new creation. The good news of Jesus Christ has been and is entrusted to unlikely characters. The people society is unprepared to believe. Survivors of sexual assault. Refugees. Minorities of any kind. Those living in impoverishment of any kind. And yet this good news... So far-flung, so fragile, so freakish, so marginal, maligned, and forgotten, so, so startling, invigorating, and haunting is ours to remain awake to, to savor, to believe. Because this is how God comes. Not as crash shout, but as whisper and rumor, as waiting room cough, Shattering midnight stillness. Amen.